0: We're looking for a hero, and we don't ever get one. Now what do we do? You know, the Constitution is brilliant for a lot of reasons. This is one of the points of naivete. Every freedom brings with it a corresponding obligation. We have a freedom of speech, and we have an obligation to listen.
1: You know how we're taught that in polite conversation, one of the things you never talk about is politics? Well... This conversation with UWL political science professor Tim Dale is sort of about politics, but it's mostly a chance to think a little differently about our place in our society. I'm Ken Cooper and this is Around River City, the podcast about the people that make this area such a cool place to live. And what a concept Tim just hit us with. Have you ever noticed how much we talk about our rights? and how little we talk about the obligations that come along with those rights? That is why I'm so excited about this conversation. This will be part one of a conversation where we talk about whether the people we elect to office should do what we want or do what's right for all of us, the benefits of cooperative efforts, and we'll get some civics lessons from The Simpsons. Really. Uh, Part one of my conversation with UWL professor Tim Dale is next on Around River City.
0: Whether you're a seasoned chef or just starting your culinary journey, Cooley Region Cooks is your new podcast resource. Discover new techniques. Hear from local culinary heroes who are mastering the art of the kitchen. Join us every Thursday morning at 10 on WIZM. Stream your favorite cooking tips, local chef interviews, and mouth-watering recipes on the WIZM app. Or find us on your favorite podcast platform. Stay updated and engaged by following us on Facebook. Just search
1: Cooley Region Cooks today. This is Around River City. I'm Ken Cooper. You know, one thing that's always made me a little uncomfortable is the us and them attitude that we as citizens seem to have with the politicians that we elect. I just think there should be more of a a we mentality. That's what made me want to have this conversation with UWL political science professor Tim Dale. I was just basically wondering if I'm naive in thinking that. But first, I think the story of how Tim and I met and began our conversation is pretty fun. You see, Tim was selling a bike. Right. My daughter, we wanted to get a bike for my daughter. You had a bike for sale on the Facebook Marketplace. And you and I were standing in your driveway while my daughter was giving a test ride to the bike. And uh, you were head to toe in UWL gear. And I said something about it. And that's how this conversation came about. So I'm a big proponent of talking to strangers.
0: Yeah, well, that's how we met. So I am too.
1: What you... Immerse yourself in every day is just fascinating to me. I, can you give your definition of what political science is? Not even necessarily what it's for, but what it is first.
0: Well, I think a lot of people hear the word politics and they think of all the negative connotations that it brings. I mean, it usually brings out angry feelings. People think about political controversy. Uh, but in uh, at the college level, in the college settings, we like to study things scientifically. And so when you study society, when you study politics, when you study psychology, you're really looking at the objective fact behind something. And so when we train students to look at politics, we're really training students to look at the world of politics, government, society, and ask questions that are meaningful. And those questions then can lead to, hopefully, jobs in the world of politics. But we put the word science at the end of political because we really do believe that we're doing science. So it's not as interesting to show up in a political science class and say, I voted for this person and this is why. Uh, That really doesn't happen. We're more interested in asking the scientific questions about politics. Why does the world work the way that it does?
1: Well, that's a good question. I don't suppose you have a short answer on that, do you?
0: <laughs> um, so one of the questions that comes up all the time is, why is government as dysfunctional as it is? Um, and I usually push back on that and say that actually our government functions exactly the way that it's designed to function. So when people complain about Congress not doing anything, I encourage my students to look at the Constitution and the ways in which the Constitution was written so that it was difficult to pass legislation. Yes,
1: it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be kind right? of cumbersome. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And so I think that when people look at politics and see frustration and agony, the political scientist looks at politics and sees politics as, the where, as where we work out our conflicts, where we come to compromises. Now, that's not always fun. In fact, a lot of times it's irritating. Uh, but the world of politics is not the world of conflict. It's actually the world of resolving conflict. We're already in conflict with each other. We just need a way to resolve it.
1: Something I said on... I was filling in on uh, La Crosse Talk on WIZM from Mike Hayes one morning, and I said the very best liberal political ideas will be made better with cooperation from the very best conservative political ideas and vice versa. Is that correct at all, or am I naive, or what do you think of that?
0: No, then that's actually one of the founding principles. Um, one of the things that I teach when I teach American political theory is actually the people who wrote our Constitution were political philosophers. And so people probably know the name James Madison. But Madison made an argument very similar to the one that you just made, which is uh, based on this idea of pluralism. If we get enough competing ideas together in society, the result of that competition is better than any one of those ideas was going to be. And so the people who wrote the US Constitution, Madison in particular, had in his mind that we need a society where people on any side of an argument would come together fight for their own interests, their own values, and that the combination of those together is going to give us as good of a society as we're going to be able to get.
1: If I feel like we've done ourselves a disservice. You mentioned plurality of ideas. Our plurality seems to have narrowed down to two. Did our founding fathers mean it to be that narrow?
0: Uh, actually, that is a, a funny story of an accident. Now, our the founders, <laughs> the founders did not want partisanship, which is interesting. Then that they immediately go into partisanship. Correct. I mean, so we probably it's, know that the almost seems of,
1: naive of them to think it, that, that wouldn't happen. You
0: know, the Constitution is brilliant for a lot of reasons. This is one of the points of naivete there, uh, and the reason we have. Uh, the the polarization is really the way we elect people to office. Not to get too complicated, but anytime you have members elected by a simple majority, you are going to get gravitation toward two political parties. And so America being one of the first true democracies in the modern world um, ended up creating an election system where we elect single member districts. So when you elect a member of Congress, you're electing one person. Uh, an accident of that that really was unanticipated was that you would have uh, this polarization where people would be vying for that 50%. Um, almost every other democracy in the world that formed after the United States actually selected a different form of electing representatives called proportional representation. And so that's why you see all these other countries that have so many different political parties and the United States really only having two other people from other countries look at the United States and ask this very question. Why do you only have two? That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't line up with the human experience. And it really was using the United States as a, as a case study to say, well, maybe we want to do it a different way. Uh, but it is an accident of our Constitution that wasn't intentional that we have a two-party system.
1: Yeah. I've heard the, the comparison made that you take yourself back to 1985 and the very first Apple computers, and that was American democracy, and it was the greatest thing but we're still working on that 1985 Apple computer, and the rest of the world is on iPhones.
0: (laughs) That's right. Yep. That's a good analogy. And I think that that's where um, you hear a lot of people dissatisfied with the American political system, particularly when we become so polarized. I still think that we are effective at bringing together uh, different viewpoints and, and finding compromises. I think that there are times where American democracy feels like it is two groups of people that will never come together. But that kind of ebbs and flows. So we've had these periods of time, it seems like about every 20 years, where we will have true polarization and then we'll kind of come together. Um, A story I like to tell actually to my students is that uh, I was teaching college classes back when Mitt Romney and John McCain were running against Barack Obama for president. And it was very common for students to show up in my classes and say, I don't see a difference between these two candidates. They have a debate, and I don't see any difference. Now, it's interesting that McCain and Romney are set up as these uh, anti-Republican Republicans right now because of kind of how the party has gone. Uh, But I think that's a good example of where partisanship really was not as pronounced Uh, even 10, 15 years ago than it is now. But then you go back before that, you get to the Bill Clinton era when you have Newt Gingrich's contract with America, Bill Clinton being impeached. We were really polarized in our politics. And so I think that that's important to, to think about when we think about how uh, aggressive politics can seem right now, is that we are going to have a time probably in pen, 15 years where we're going to look back on this and say, yeah, that was a time of a lot of division. Um, but then we'll come back together again, and p- my students will be once again saying, I don't see a difference between these two candidates.
1: <laughs> is one better than the other?
0: Uh, I, I don't know. I, what's interesting about that is, uh, I, I'm going to answer this selfishly at first, a lot more people want to study political science when it's divided. Our, our majors are up. Uh, but and, and people want to talk to political scientists much more when it seems relevant and divided. Um, I like it when it's divided because I think people see why ideas matter, uh, what worries me when there seems to be only one prevalent idea is you don't get a lot of debate, and it really is in the the success of a debate that you get ideas developing and evolving. Uh, so personally, both in what I do for a living and also what I think is good for democracy, I think debate is good, but it d- is definitely uncomfortable, and, and it doesn't make people feel great when it's hard to bring up uh, certain topics in conversation at the dinner table.
1: I think, I wonder if... Is there a college course that can be taught that will teach us how to do a better job of accepting ideas we don't like? That just because I don't like something doesn't mean it's wrong?
0: Right. Well, I actually think that there's a lot of college classes that do that. I think that that's really the norm in a college classroom. Um, One of the things that we've been talking about a lot lately in our Department of Political Science at UWL is that um, in our classrooms, we don't have a problem with students being aggressive with each other, and we talk about politics all the time, and I think that uh, one of the questions is, how can we bring that atmosphere of intellectual disagreement without getting personal to a more broad public space, and I talk to my students about this all the time, so I would say almost literally in every single class I teach, the conversation with the students is, how do we have conversations with people who don't agree with us to push the conversation forward, to bring a kind of progress uh, to our... Uh, you know shared spaces, shared
1: lives. I I think we've all become very good at expressing what we think and this is a gross generalization of course but I think we could use a lot of help as a society in general learning how to receive others information the way we expect them to receive ours. You know I always I've told people you know how in the world can I expect you to respect me if I don't first respect you and what you have to say.
0: Absolutely. And actually, one of the ways that um, I like to talk about this is in terms of the First Amendment freedoms. So we have a freedom of speech. We know we have a freedom of speech. But every freedom brings with it a corresponding obligation. And in this case, we have an obligation to listen. Because if everyone has freedom of speech, just as freedom of speech, we would all be talking all the time and no one would hear anybody. But sure enough, you can say whatever you want to say. But in a democratic society, the freedom of speech is also a promise that we will listen to each other and acknowledge that the other person has a viewpoint. And so I think that uh, we we are better as a society if we acknowledge that the rights that we know we have are brought uh, kind of along with some obligations that we have to each other.
1: I like that you use the word promise. Uh, I have not ever heard the First Amendment spoken about with the word promise.
0: Right, and I think that um, we have uh, obligations to each other. We have obligations to our government, right? Uh, A freedom of the press is also an obligation of the press. And so I think that the the media being considered uh, essentially the uh, fourth branch of government, which is the way it's referred to uh, in America from essentially the beginning, really speaks to an obligation that is built into a freedom of the press. This is why the the, the press are uh, have a certain code of conduct. This is why they're they're essential in a democracy. Uh, so. Uh, I, I absolutely think that the First Amendment is filled with promises to each other and not just an assertion of what we have a right to do without any obligation to anybody else.
1: Wow, that is, that's is—that's a perspective change. That's kind of a mind blow right there. Is that what fascinates you about political science? It really does.
0: So when I first uh, went to college, I thought I wanted to be a press secretary. I wanted to stand up in front of reporters firing questions at me, just grilling me. I was in competitive debate in in college and I love the world of aggressive argument. Now, it's not for everybody. And let's define aggressive. I mean, the way that people get uncomfortable when they look at a uh, press secretary for a president, having to answer really aggressive questions from reporters, I think that's great. I think it's good for democracy. I think it's good for the press. I think it's good for the president. I think we want a society in which we are aggressively, assertively a- asking questions of our political leaders. Uh, and so I, I went to college with studying communication and political science, thinking that this is what I wanted to do with my career. And um, when I ended up in the classroom, I noticed that um, there were a lot of really interesting ideas being discussed. And so it became this kind of pipe dream. Could I actually talk about politics all the time with people who are interested in learning about politics? Uh, because it's also a process of con- continuously learning myself. Um, and by the time I was done with college, the, the undergraduate, uh, I said, I want to do more of this. And so ended up 10 years in college, and they finally gave me a PhD and kicked me out. Uh, So (laughs) (laughs) that meant that I had to become a professor. Uh, But yes, this is exactly why I'm interested in politics, is um, talking about these things that matter to us as a society. And really, I believe, uh, making a difference both for me and for college students um, thinking about what citizenship means and what it's going to mean to be out in the world no matter what a person's job is no matter what a person's situation is that they can be engaged in the really important work of keeping our democracy going which which is hard work
1: now, It seems like so many of the really important things are really hard work, aren't they? Uh, like democracies and relationships and learning to play the trombone I tried so hard in 8th grade I really did We always have to remember the hard work. Stay with me. The conversation continues with Tim Dale, professor of political science at UWL. And when we come back on Around River City, we'll talk about hope. This is Around River City. I'm Ken Cooper. You know, you can subscribe to the podcast at aroundrivercity.com and you'll be alerted every time I have a new episode for you. Okay, let's get back to the conversation with Tim Dale, professor of political science at UWL. Now, as a professor, a teacher, Tim is surrounded by young people every day. So I was wondering how that might affect his outlook on the future. Does it give you hope or worry for the future?
0: Absolutely hope. Uh, college students are as smart, as insightful, uh, as interested in the world as, as I've ever experienced. Um, I think that uh, whenever we see you know, uh, 20-something, 18-year-old kids, uh, so to speak, uh, making mistakes, we know that they're the same mistakes that we made. Um, And I think that that's one of the reasons that a college education can be so essential for helping a democracy, is that they show up in the classroom with questions and interests, but they haven't worked all of those things out yet. And I think what gives me the most hope is that um, when they get big complicated problems, they're not intimidated by them, but they want to take them on. And I think that that's the kind of ambition that's really exciting and a a good promise for the future. Um, And so every time I sit through a graduation um, at UWL, I think those students have all gone through these classes. They are ready to take on these big complicated problems because the problems in the world aren't simple. And that that's what gets me excited, is that every year we have a whole new group of students that are ready to tackle big, complex problems.
1: So why do we as humans crave simple answers? Please don't give me a complicated answer to this question. Well, it's a complicated answer. Does what you do help us accept those complicated answers, do you think? Or understand them? or? I think so,
0: and I think um, there, there are different... Forms of complications. I mean, you could have complicated uh, answers because we don't know all the answers yet. Uh, you know, science is constantly, we're we never going to know everything. Um, in the world of politics, they can be complicated just because people are complicated. Uh, people want easy answers right now and they also want to be told the truth. Uh, what, uh, one of the things I think is funny in the world of politics that is, is one of these constant ironies is that people will always say they want their representatives to work. Uh, with other representatives toward common solutions. But then they will also want their representatives to stand on principle. And you can't possibly stand for what you believe in and be uncompromising and also be compromising at the same time. And so I think that then we're complicated because people are complicated. And so where people want simple answers, uh, I think that uh, the human mind definitely wants to understand the world in a way that doesn't cause a lot of... uh, problems or complications Um, but it also wants to engage with the world in in a way that understands what's going on in the world and so I think that that's where uh, when people are are pursuing education no matter what that education is they'll see that the world becomes more simple because they understand what's going on around them um, but also more complex because they understand what's going on around them so education is this strange combination of uh, making the world more simple and more complex at the same time
1: I picture Society and politics, I'll just use an example, I'll I'll equate it to like a diet. You lose 10 pounds and you think, all right, I hit my goal, I'm done. But really, it has to be an ongoing continual process. In my mind, that seems to be what our social structure and our politics are there for, is to help us maintain the, the constant effort it takes to not fall back on our biology and strictly our biology, it takes effort to be cognitive human beings. Does that make any
0: sense? Absolutely, and I think that the um, a, a really good analogy for politics, and it makes some people uncomfortable, but I use it all the time, is friendship. And when we think about friendship, friendship isn't a thing that you get to with someone. It's not like, okay, we're friends, and now that's it. We just check a box, and we're done. Um, as we know, every human relationship is a development, and it's always ongoing. And you can become better friends and worse friends. You can Uh, learn things about each other. You can solve problems together or you can grow apart. And friendship takes work. I think we all know during a pandemic that there are friendships that we kind of lost or eroded because we haven't done the work that it takes to keep those going. And I think democratic society is the same. It's not going to be that we are fully a democracy or fully in a society where we are with other people and we can just be done with it because it's going to always be a process. It's always going to be a process of cultivating that democracy. I think that's where political participation is so important and that's one of the things that if you ask any political science professor, they're kind of obsessed with this idea of making sure that uh, younger people know that political participation is essential. Because uh, if you don't participate in politics, you're really giving up on democracy. We no longer have a democracy if people aren't participating in politics. So as irritating as it is, as annoying as your friend is, you think if I'm going to do something about this, it's going to have to be done, um, and I can't just sit back and let someone else do it.
1: I had a cousin years ago who said, if all you do is vote in a general election, you're not really participating in government or in our or in our society, really. Right.
0: It's exactly what I say too. And I think that um, one of the interesting things about voting is that it actually only uh, gives a preference for a candidate. It doesn't say anything about a person's opinion about any public policy issue. Because when you vote for a candidate for mayor or governor or Congress, you could be voting for that person for any number of reasons. But in a democracy, we are required to have a full on public debate about what it is that we want from our government what it is, what we expect from each other and so a vote actually does very little if anything to contribute to democracy in that more uh,
1: thorough way mm.
0: of participating in a
1: democracy interesting
0: and so I think that absolutely voting is important in a democracy uh, but so is being on a parent-teacher organization so is being involved in a community so is giving money to causes that you think are important That's also a democracy. I think people kind of lose the idea of democracy being only a way of voting. It's actually a way of living. It's a culture in a society.
1: So I guess democracy is a verb. It's an action. It's not something we live in. It's something we do every day. That's a different way of looking at it, don't you think? That'll wrap up part one of my conversation with UWL political science professor Tim Dale. Coming up in part two, we'll get into some really mind-bending stuff, like what The Simpsons, the TV show, can teach us about democracy, how the Constitution may be a bit naive in some ways, and what politicians are really supposed to do after we elect them. Head over to AroundRiverCity.com and subscribe for free to the podcast. You'll get an alert when part two of this conversation and any new podcast is up and running. As always, thanks for being part of the conversation. I'm Ken Cooper and this is Around River City.